I am speaking to you from one of the oldest Episcopal churches in all of Western North Carolina, Calvary Episcopal, in what is, I'm told, also one of the oldest cemeteries in Western North Carolina. And it's inevitable, so I'm told, that there are those who have died here who have fought in any number of wars who call this place home, and now this is their final resting place. Why, Why am I speaking to you from here? Back in the early 1990s, there was a book written by a futurist by the name of Francis Fukuyama. And that book was entitled, The End of History. And his thesis was, with the end, with the, 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 the falling down of the Berlin Wall, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the end of the Cold War, in his estimation, history in all of its upheavals and eruptions and coups had finally come to an end because now democracies were springing up and they were maturing. And so he, in his book, argued that those days of, of wars and upheavals and having to commemorate places for the war dead were, were finally at an end. And as you might expect, people heard that thesis and gave it a little criticism. And especially when something like 9-11 happens and everything that's followed in the wake of that, such that one thinks that perhaps his version of the end of history is not exactly the end of history. And is it not in our day that you and I are wondering if this history will prevail in any sort of peaceful sense, when it seems like a lot of times that history is pretty much just a path to nowhere and maybe nothing more than a minefield? How should we think about history and, and more importantly, how should we live inside of it? Because we don't have a choice. That's the history that we have and we've got to figure out a way how to conceive of it and how to operate within it. We've been listening to Daniel for a lot of weeks now and this morning in the passage we're going to look at, it is an abrupt shift. We are done with lion's dens and fiery furnaces and handwriting on the wall. We are stepping into some weirder, wilder stuff in a dream that he has, in a vision that he has. And he is speaking from a particular historical vantage point, but his objective is to speak about the true end of history. Many might claim that there might be an end to history after certain things are satisfied. Daniel wants to offer to us, and first of all to Israel before us, what is that true end of history? That's what we're going to look at in three senses. The course of history, the true end of history, and what is the key to that history. The course of history, the true end of history, and the key to that history. Buckle up, it's going to blow your mind what you're going to hear, but I wonder if you might listen to Daniel chapter 7. Our central text for today is found in Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked as, as the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, 
terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes of, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As they looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning these things. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall re receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about ten horns that were on his head, and the other horn came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes had a mouth that spoke great things, and seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak the words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. See, I, I told you, it, it'll blow your mind. That's a wholly different kind of dream that we're hearing here. See, Daniel, we're accustomed to Daniel being the one to interpret the dream, and yet this one, of all the dreams we've heard so far, is probably the wildest we've won, heard so far. And, and what's distinct about this one is it's this time that Daniel can't sleep. 
And, and Daniel is disturbed by this vision that he's having in his sleep. And it's Daniel who needs help to interpret it. When you go to the doctor's office and the doctor looks pretty deadpan, you kind of not worried about what he thinks is up and how he can help. But when the doctor starts to get wide-eyed, you're going, uh-oh, okay, we're in for something a little bit different. And that's what we've got with Daniel. In Daniel's dream, there's a vision, and you followed it, four beasts. The first three, lions and bears and leopards. Oh my, right? And then there's this fourth one that defies description. It's got nasty teeth. And it's more ferocious than anything that anybody had seen. And it's more bloodthirsty and it's more powerful. So powerful that Daniel sees in his dream that it is overpowering even those who are faithful unto the Lord. That even they require a protection that they do not possess. And in that moment, you find Daniel, who is both disturbed and mystified. He didn't have a clue. He needs help to understand the vision. And finally, it's somebody that has to tell him what's going on here. What is this about? And they lay it plain for him. These four, these four beasts, these four beastly personages, they represent kings and kingdoms. They represent a sequence of rules and authorities, a, a cycle, an ebb and tide of of ongoing rules from, from various identities, and, and they represent the course of history. And what, of course, gets most airtime in this sequence of history, the course of history, is this fourth beast. The fourth one that nobody can quite put their finger on. And it's that one that gives Daniel the greatest pause, and it requires of Daniel the most explanation. Now, that's the vision as briefly summarized as imaginable. And the question is, all right, so what? Um, we've all stepped out of the Stanley Kubrick film for just a moment as we've considered the first several verses of chapter 7. What do we do with it? It's ancient, it's bizarre, and if we're honest with ourselves, we've heard of all sorts of visions out there that prove just to be the, you know, the consequence of somebody's imagination or bad digestion. So what do we do with this one? If you will, just for a moment, leave aside the identity of who these kings or kingdoms might be, especially the one that defies description. I think there's at least two implications we take from Daniel's explanation of what will just be the course of history. A course of history that we all should just become settled with in some way. And the first implication is this. It has everything to do with what these kings and kingdoms are being compared to. To compare them to beasts is not merely for dramatic effect. It's not rhetorical flourish. There's a point to it. And it is to suggest to Israel and to us who find ourselves in that course of history that we ought not be surprised that kings and kingdoms, rules and their ruling can act like beasts. That those who are human in authority can act subhuman in a number of ways, and they can begin to treat those they rule as if they were subhuman and not worthy of the dignity or respect naturally accorded to humans. It's the way it works. It's the way the course of history goes. Human authority often acts in ways that you would just boggle the mind. And we ought not be surprised by that. Now, that Recognition is not meant to lead us into a posture of resignation or, or merely to be those who have sort of a, a sober role of spectator of the way 
things come and go and rulers come and go and, and authorities both uh, encourage uh, and maybe disappoint at times. And surely Daniel is testimony to the fact of somebody that did not hang back in the face of authorities that acted like beasts. He, he confronts Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. He confronts Belteshazzar in chapter 5. In no way is he a spectator to the ebb and flow of beastly rules. But there is another implication from that, in that if, if authorities act like beasts, then I think that means that from time to time we need to adjust our allegiances. We need to finally calibrate our loyalties when it comes to those who are in authority because it's the nature of humanity and the nature of rulers that sometimes those who rule can be corrupt and become corrupted in the midst of their ruling and we have ought to have a proper expectation of that at times. That's one implication of, of grappling with the course of history and we could point to any number of examples that would corroborate what Daniel is, uh, is uh, surfacing here. But there's another implication, a second implication about this, and that's, and that's how we think about God's presence in the midst of the course of history. That in the same way we ought not be surprised that, that authorities can act beastly and subhuman and treat others without their humanity, we also not assume that God in the midst of all of that is outside of it or uninvolved. I mean, it's, it's Daniel himself who reminds us that it's God in chapter 2 who, who changes times and seasons, who, who sets up kings and deposes kings. And in chapter 4, it is God Most High who has dominion over all authority. We've kept hearing that. And in chapter 5, it's Belteshazzar who is confronted by Daniel, who refuses to submit in humility before the Lord, and it's the Lord who takes him down. When I was in college, there was a book I read by a historian named George Marsden. And George Marsden uh, was a, a particular expert in the study of religion in America. And he wrote a book called Fundamentalism and American Religion. I'm gonna read you a paragraph, just a paragraph from that book that has stuck with me ever since college. That Don't worry, I'll unpack it for you. But just listen to what he said about how you think of God's relationship to history. The awareness that God acts in history in ways that we can only know in the context of our culturally determined experience should be central to a Christian understanding of history. Yet the Christian must not lose sight of the fact that just as in the incarnation, Christ's humanity does not compromise his divinity, so the reality of God's other work in history going well beyond what we might explain as natural phenomenon is not compromised by the fact that it is culturally defined. Oh my gosh, that's a mouthful. What did he mean? Here's what he meant. You want to look at history. And a lot of times, you and I might be led to conclude that history is following nothing than what we do to it. That it is simply the product of cultural shifts, and those cultural shifts are entirely the consequences of random or intentional acts. But there's nothing outside the system to influence them. Marsden is out to tell us that inasmuch as things seem to be plodding along according to certain cultural changes, don't think for a minute that God is not involved in the midst of that in some mysterious way. And that if you just want to look at Christ's incarnation, He is God who becomes flesh, and He is one who is a man in every way that we were except without sin, and yet that in no way compromises the fact that He is also God. 
What Marsden is out to tell us is that in the same way that, that God acts in ways that defy explanation, that no human effort could account for, don't think for a minute that he also can't also work in and through us in history. Daniel is, is not here mostly to impress us with a certain fearfulness about the beastliness of humanity and the beastliest times in which rule sort of devolves into the ditch. He's here mostly to tell us that even in the midst of the course of history, God is involved. And how hard that is to believe in the moment. And how necessary it is perhaps to look back upon things and see what God might be up to. That's the course of history. And we all have to grapple with it. But whereas that is the course of history, that's not the true end of history. So let's go back to the beasts. The first three beasts, they're, they're fearsome in their own right, and rabbinical scholars across the ages, ever since Daniel was put to print, have been wondering who he might have had in mind. Is it the Persians? Is it the Greeks? Is it the Romans? And you know what? They all make plausible theories as to who the identity of those authorities might be represented by beasts, but that does not seem to be Daniel's main purpose or point. He doesn't specify what he does give the most airtime to, as I've said before, is this fourth beast, which defies description. It, it has no precedent, and it holds court over what sounds like the whole earth, it including believers who are in God. It, it says in, there in verse 24 and 25, it speaks arrogant words. It is apparently the most formidable beast on the planet, and it makes wars on the saints, such that the most baffling thing that you might hear about this beast, whoever it might be, is what it says there in verse 25. They, that is God, that is the people of God, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Who is this beast? Would, would the real beast please stand up? Look, you may know enough about the history of Christian thought, about who they thought this beast might be, but Daniel doesn't seem to have and in mind who that might be. He doesn't seem to mind not telling you who that is. In fact, his, his concern is actually at a point beyond the, uh, the advent of this beast. His point, his purpose is to look at a last battle. And you hear there in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, his, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. There it is, this Ancient of Days. You will never hear that phrase anywhere outside of Daniel in the whole Bible, and yet you will hear that phrase uttered of God three times in just this chapter alone. It is to refer to the Lord, the one who has no beginning, who has, if you will, seen a thing or two, and therefore you might think God of God here as, as Gandalf, the, the wise one, the one who's been around the block more often than everybody else who is able both to encourage and comfort and confront the kingdoms of this world, they fret and strut about the land. The Ancient of Days, he sits. He's unperturbed. His presence is like searing fire. And what Daniel discovers in seeing that vision of the Ancient of Days sitting out on a throne like with fiery wheels is to imagine a culmination of history. 
a culmination of history that ends in a judgment. And judgment can take on a number of associations, but if you unpack what it means, it is first of all a revealing of the way things are. It is an unveiling. And with that unveiling, there is an exposing. And with that exposing, there is an accounting. And with that accounting, there is a recompensing. The culmination of history is hidden and it comes to light. And from that point, it is speaking of a day in which there will be a judgment. When what is hidden will come to light, when what is broken will be mended, when what is unjust will be set right and made just. And that's our focus. And gosh, even in this political season, aren't we all so intently passionate, focused on what will rightly order society? What'll do it? Who can do it? And is it not the case that the more we think about it and the more we survey the possibilities, the more exhausted we become about what feels to be such an elusive hope, an elusive dream, a rightly ordered, just society? And in a moment like that, and in a realization like that, and even hearing this vision of a future judgment, it would be understandable if you thought it only ridiculous or outlandish, and that this is nice and, and maybe it encourages us for a few minutes, but why think about it at all? As outlandish and as ridiculous as it might seem to think of a final end to history in which that which we most desire that which is most just, most true, most beautiful, most loving, at last prevailing and without end. If it's possible, here's the point I'm trying to make. If it is possible to believe that everything that I can lay my eyes on and you yourself and the things that I even cannot see, like quantum mechanics, if all of that is possible to have been made by an unseen hand with an intelligence, then why is it not possible also to believe that that same one can set everything that we've brought to ruin finally into place? This end to history, this true end of history, ends with a justice. And that justice comes by the one who is the ancient of days. But if you were listening carefully, there was one other personality that was in place, one other personage that was accompanying the Ancient of Days in that moment. We learn about the key to history from what we find in verses 13 and 14. The, the Ancient of Days sits, he opens the books like he's some sort of CPA and looking at the ledger and he's doing an accounting, and then there's this other figure that comes on the scene, one who is hidden, a hidden figure that is now revealed and you hear of him spoken in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man. Now in other places in the Old Testament, when you hear the phrase the Son of Man, sometimes it refers merely to one who is an everyman, a, a representative of our humanity. What is man that you're mindful of him, the psalmist says in Psalm 8. A Son of Man that you care for him. Uh, 
Trudge along your merrily way to the prophet Ezekiel. He too is addressed by God as a son of man. He is a prophet. He is also a messenger. And for 90 occasions or more in the book of Ezekiel, you hear the phrase, the son of man. Here in Daniel, Daniel refers to the son of man as one who comes on the scene, who is presented before the Ancient of Days, and yet who is something more than just a man. Clearly, because he is one to whom is given both authority and glory, and every nation and tribe and language end up serving him in that glory. It's the Son of Man, and that Son of Man is intrinsic or in, in, inextricably involved with the Ancient of Days at the culmination of history. Apparently, the Son of Man is the key to history. Why bring it up? Of all the names that Jesus ascribes to himself in any of the Gospels, it's not Christ, it's not Messiah, it's not the Son of God, it's the phrase, the Son of Man. Why might that be the case? Why does he prefer to refer to himself more often than not as the Son of Man? I'll tell you why. Because in this moment, Jesus, at, an earlier, at, a, at a moment late in his ministry, he is being questioned at what was the, the sham of a trial by the high priest who asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Beloved? And he says in Mark 14, 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Did you catch all that? He's the Son of Man. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of power. Jesus, in that moment, being questioned by the high priest, is trying to telegraph to this high priest that he believes himself to be the very embodiment of what Daniel imagines in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He's the Son of Man who's come to be the key to history. And here's the bizarre and baffling and, and, and gobsmackingly bizarre thing about it. He would come and be the one who conquers by letting himself be conquered. He would be the one to overturn the powers arrayed against the forces of good in this world by himself being overpowered. That, friends, is what we know as the gospel. The Son of Man, who was just enough man to be one like us, and yet just enough God for his sacrifice to be worthy the lamb who was slain to be worthy of forgiving all our sin and having the power both to judge the quick and the dead and to conquer every power and principality in the land. What Jesus is out to tell us in telling us that he's the son of man is that the means of bringing judgment, of overturning every power, was not that he would come and destroy but to let himself be destroyed. That's what we know is the gospel. That's why we consider him to be the key of history. All oh, that is just beyond measure what we can imagine and what do we do with So what do we do with all that? How do we land this plane? What do we take with what we've got here? Look, we all know and we might expect to hear somebody from the pulpit talking about Jesus and thinking that he's the key to history. But in the same way that I had you kind of pan out and consider another piece of context in order to believe that he might be the key to history? Let me put it this way. If Jesus was in fact man enough to represent us and God enough to save us and even be risen from the dead, 
then why could we not think of him as the one to be the key to the culmination of history? So where do we go from here? What do we do with it? Two things. Two implications. Two takeaways. Jamie Smith, in a political season, reminds us of this. Our most revolutionary political act is to hope. You and I, in the midst of that belief that there is both a course, an end, and a key to history, we're called to hope. And how do we hope? Listen to something else Jamie Smith says. Worship, again and again, interrupts the course of the world. Through worship, the Christian community testifies that the world is not on its own. And this also means that it is not kept alive by politics, as the business of politics, which knows no Sabbath, would have us believe. Oh, friends, beloved uh, politicos and pundits, would you know that there is something grander and larger and more significant upon which to place your hope? Would you please remember not to neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some, would you take stock in the fact that there is something more to worship than only gathering in each other's midst, though that too is important? How do we believe this? How do we hope in this? How do we act with that revolutionary hope? We worship. Don't underestimate the importance and the point of worship. But in one last point, I might say this. Plant irises. And by that I mean, I take it from a story from the husband of Virginia Woolf. His name was Leonard, and he recounted a scene uh, in the mid-1930s when he said this, it will I will end with a little scene that took place in the last months of peace. They were the most terrible months of my life, for helplessly and hopelessly one watched the inevitable approach of war. One of the most horrible things at that time was to listen on the wireless to the speeches of Hitler, the savage and insane ravings of a vindictive underdog who suddenly saw himself to be all-powerful. We were in Rodmel during the late summer of 1939, and I used to listen to those ranting, raving speeches. One afternoon, I was planting in the orchard under an apple tree, Iris reticulata, those lovely violet flowers. Suddenly, I heard Virginia's voice calling to me from the sitting room window. Hitler is making a speech! I shouted back, I shall not come. I'm planting iris, and they will be flowering long after he is dead. And that last March, 21 years after Hitler committed suicide in the bunker, a few of those violet flowers still flowered under the apple tree in the orchard. Friends, whatever you must do to plant your irises, to invest in that which will outlast this day and outlast yourself, the way you first seek the kingdom and believe in worship and in an end for which there will be no end, you give yourself to that which will outlive even yourself. This, friends, is what it means to believe in an end of history. And this, friends, is what it means to live in the history that we have. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.